0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host.
1: i Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and give me back my hand!
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jason, giving us some, uh, some deadite energy or... Uh,
1: I don't know exactly what's the going The opposite. It would be the fighter of the dead, eye chair. But I was just connecting Moonstruck, where he lost his hand, mm. and Evil Dead mm. 2, where he mm-hmm. lost his mm-hmm. hand mm-hmm. in this season. Uh-huh.
0: That is that is a smart connection you've made, and that's, <laughs> that's why you bring so much value to this podcast.
1: You know, Josh, uh, I like to look at a path forward and then go around it. <laughs>
0: Amazing. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1987, and we are here at the pick from our producer, David Rosen. So Dave, what did
2: you pick? I picked Evil Dead 2 from Sam Raimi, starring Bruce Campbell, and as you guys know, one of my all-time favorite movies. Is this your, your all-time favorite movie, period? It goes back and forth between this and adaptation. It depends on what kind of a mood I'm in on that particular day, but yes. Okay.
1: If Charlie Kaufman ever wrote a remake of Evil Dead, then Dave would explode from jizzing too hard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just be foamy red stuff uh, flying everywhere, like a
1: like a rabies infested monster. <laughs> Wonderful. Well,
0: no, I'm excited that, about this because I had thought that this was definitely your favorite movie of all time. And mm-hmm. we had talked about my favorite movie of all time in our 1989 yeah. season. So we just got to get to whatever Jason's favorite movie of all time is someday.
1: What is my favorite movie? Can you guys tell me? I, I don't know. I was going to ask you. I mean, I lean towards Goodfellas a lot, right. you know, I but uh, that would have been my guess. Yeah, yeah. I think Goodfellas, Lebowski's always up there. But as you know, Josh, I like a lot of these indies that uh, we could throw on there. So all right. who knows? Okay. <laughs> well, let me just name movies for a
0: while. Yeah, we'll just keep this. <laughs> this podcast is just a list of movies that Jason likes. <laughs> we'll get to one of those movies eventually, probably. But for now, we're going to talk about Evil Dead 2. Of course, the sequel to the original Evil Dead sequel or remake. Uh, debatable What? Exa- how exactly you might categorize this.
1: It's so crazy the way that this canon works where it's like we reference the last film, but then we ignore certain elements of the timeline and stuff that's happened, and we'll just make it. And that happens in Army of Darkness, too, where it's like, this this isn't how Evil Dead 2 ended. Why are we starting here?
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like the beginning of this film is almost like a brief remake of the first Evil Dead, and so they take that as the new continuity
1: that we move forward from. I guess. It's strange. I mean, he didn't have the rights. To Raimi he had the rights to the characters and everything, but not the footage from the original Evil Dead. So they had to like, you know, what would have been like a clear narrative, like, hey, this is what happened, but I'm going... But it doesn't even seem like he references to me like, hey, I was at this cabin before
0: and bad things happened. Well, he wasn't at the cabin before. I think that's what I'm saying is that the beginning of the movie... Reimagines the events of Evil Dead as just Ash, Bruce Campbell's character, and his girlfriend showing up at the cabin, bad shit happens, and then that the, the shot that ends the original Evil Dead with the camera swooping through the cabin towards Bruce Campbell's face happens here. So he never leaves the cabin. Bad shit happens and then he just stays there and more bad shit happens in Evil Dead too, was my understanding.
1: It's a tough timeline to follow. Dave, what are we missing? You're
2: not missing anything. Yeah. It took me years to come around to like what exactly that timeline is. But yeah, Josh, it's right. That That's how it works. Josh is right. The best words we can hear on
0: this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, the original Evil Dead had been, I guess we could call it a cult film at this point in the few years since it had come out and it had been acclaimed by critics. And so Sam Raimi was offered the chance to make, again, a sequel slash remake. I feel like maybe it had been acclaimed, it had ha- built an audience, it had a cult following, but maybe part of the reason they essentially remake it with this one is because it still hadn't reached a mainstream enough audience that a lot of people would remember, oh, Evil Dead, I saw that and I know what happened in that original
1: movie. So from my research, Josh, yes. which as you know, is um, just Volumes and volumes, mm, Josh. Mm, so, sure. um, yeah, they made the they made the original. It did well. It, it made money. Was a hit uh, in its own regard. Then he does Crime Wave, right, uh, Dave? Have you ever seen Crime Wave?
2: Back in high school, it's, I'm I'm going to go on a big Sam Raimi rewatch sometime soon, but I haven't seen it in years. Uh,
1: yeah, I just rewatched uh, a Simple Plan last night, and uh, nice. that first hour is a five star hour, and then it kind of falls off in the second hour, but it's still good. Um, yeah. and then, so they make crime wave, it's a bust, but Stephen King was a huge fan of the original evil dead and brought it to, uh, Dino De Laurentiis and said, Hey, you should make the next one of these. So they had already kind of concepted what was army of darkness. And then Dino De Laurentiis just said, no, I'll give you the money, but I want you to basically make the same movie again. And they were like, cool, we'll do that. Right. I think the idea that
0: this worked the last time, so let's get some more of that. And I'm sure this did introduce a lot of people to the Evil Dead concept, franchise, whatever, who were not necessarily familiar with the original.
1: I think so. I knew Evil Dead too before I knew Evil Dead. Right, I think
0: that's fairly common. Although it wasn't a huge box office hit, part of the issue is that it was way too gory to get an R rating and rather than having to either edit it or release it with like an X rating or even risk finding out what the rating would be, they preemptively decided to release it unrated and that meant releasing it in a smaller number of theaters under like almost like a shell company, it seemed like. So, you know, De Laurentiis' company wasn't associated with it. So probably it didn't reach as wide an audience as it could have initially. It grossed $5.9 million dollars on its budget of $3.5 million, which is, you know, not, not that great. And as we keep saying about so many things this season and in the 80s and 90s, something that I think picked up a much, much bigger audience on home video as the original probably had even by this point.
1: I agree with that. But what really is shocking is how do you give this movie an X rating? Like, it's so over the top with its, you know, gore that like, come on, where's your sense of humor? I asked the MPAA. <laughs> well, this is
0: the thing though, is that the MPAA didn't even rate it. That was what was amazing to me was that the producers were just like, there's no way this can get in our rating, so we're not even gonna try. And they just released it without the rating at all.
1: Come on, producers, where's
0: your sense of humor? Right. Like they didn't want to risk maybe some kind of publicity, a news story about how, oh, this movie would have been rated X or whatever, and that that, that would turn audiences away somehow. Although it seems like it would be the opposite for the kind of people who would want to see this
1: movie. And I never even consider like, I guess now would be NC-17 or yeah. whatever. But when you think of like rated X, you think like, oh, a lot of blood. <laughs>
0: there is a lot of blood in this movie. I mean, it may be kind of cartoonish looking blood, but it, it there is a lot of it.
1: Yes. I think that's maybe my favorite scene is the, uh, the wall blood, the, wall. the blood bath from the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just geysers and geysers and geysers of blood. Which was shot in a very cool way, Josh. They actually had Bruce Campbell lying down and they dropped all the blood from the ceiling and you know tilted the camera uh, so it looks like he was standing up. And then uh, Bruce Campbell was um, blowing fake blood out of his nose for the next two weeks, he said. I
0: bet, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of amazing practical effects. Of course, everything is practical because we don't have CGI here in 1987 uh, or certainly not for a low-budget movie like this. But I mean... One thing I think that just stands up and is just amazing about this movie is all the practical effects. And I'm sure there's stories like that about basically
1: every effects piece in the movie. I mean, they're fun to read about. They're fun to watch. And imagine if this was, well, I mean, I guess we could talk about those, the ones that have come out recently. But the practical effects, like we said, with like some of the Peter Jackson stuff that we've talked about, like that's, they help make this movie as charming as
0: it is. Right. And it is charming. I think that's the thing and and as you're saying like the violence is yes, there's a ton of violence but it's so slapsticky that it it doesn't feel like dark or intense. Um so critics had liked the first movie and they liked this one too although you know reaction was somewhat mixed. It got a uh, thumbs up from Ebert but a thumbs down from Siskel who referred to it as a lot of frosting and very little cake which was mm. his metaphor about um you know basically saying it it was style over substance kind of thing which,
1: which sizzle over steak is that what you're telling me
0: yeah something like that and i think that's fair i mean we're we're just talking right now about all the amazing effects but we're not going to talk about the amazing story i don't think
1: i mean that's part of the
0: substance though right but there there's not a lot of it is what i'm saying
1: I feel like all those effects are there for a reason and further the storytelling. So I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. Well,
0: uh, Ebert was generally very positive about this. He said, Evil Dead 2 is a comedy disguised as a blood-soaked shakarama. It looks superficially like a routine horror movie, a vomitorium designed to separate callow teenagers from their lunch. But look a little closer and you'll realize that the movie is a fairly sophisticated satire. Level 1 viewers will say it's in bad taste. Level 2 folks like myself will perceive that it is about bad taste. If nauseating images of horrific gore are not, as they say, your cup of tea, the odds are good you will not have a great time during this movie. On the other hand, if you know it's all special effects, and if you've seen a lot of other movies and have a sense of humor, you might have a great time at Evil Dead 2. I did, up to a point. The movie devours ideas at such a prodigious rate that it begins to repeat itself toward the end, but the first 45 minutes have a kind of manic-inspired genius to them.
1: That's a very good sample of Ebert at his finest, I'd say, because I agree with pretty much all of that, and I liked his word choices there a lot. I do wonder what level Dave is. Yeah, Dave is on like level infinity with this movie. That's what I mean. I don't think in the key that Ebert gave that we've reached Dave level viewer. shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a roller coaster the whole time.
0: Yeah, so. I do like that That Ebert's review is like, if you're an idiot, you'll think
1: this. <laughs> but if you're a smart guy like me, here's what you'll think. <laughs> but the, the point of pacing and I think, like me, I like Evil Dead a little more than Evil Dead 2 and I think it's because there were all those other characters to kind of give us that breathing room and do some other things. And I I agree with him on the pacing. It does come at you at such a hurried pace that like it is, and I like when a lot of things happen in movies, but it is tough to like kind of separate what's going on from what's gone on and what's about to go on.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think both this and the first movie, to me, the biggest thing is even though they're both very short movies, they're just so repetitive. You kind of get like Raimi does one thing, and he does it well, but then he just does it over and over and over again for 85 minutes each time. And, and I kind of, like Ebert, it seemed like it ran out of steam for me before the movie was over. Are you level two? I, I don't know what level I'm on. I'm, no one's on Ebert's level, of course, really. Um, Dave's on his, in his own game. He's not even in this game. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> on a whole other plane. So uh, Karen James in the New York Times was also a bit mixed. She said,
1: Josh, real fast, would that plane be somewhere in the 1300s fighting off deadites then? (laughs) Maybe that's where Ebert has ended up somehow. Or Dave. (laughs) Both of them. So
0: Karen James in the New York Times was also a bit mixed. She said, tales of demonic possession are common, but the clever creators of Evil Dead 2 seem possessed by the ghosts of Moe, Larry, and Curly. While Sam Raimi's 1983 Evil Dead winked at the conventions it played off, young couples stranded in a lonely cabin, possessed by evil spirits, surrounded by foggy moonlight, its sequel turns these cliches into hilariously silly, Three Stooges-inspired slapstick. But Evil Dead 2 doesn't sustain its crackpot wit. The effects that produce spectacular, slimy-faced demons can become jarring set pieces. After we've settled into a world where the monster's Kelly Green blood tells us not to be scared, it's too late for Mister Ramey to pull the comic carpet out from under us and create some tension.
1: I mean, it's a comedy. I don't think that's. um, I never thought there was like a tonal change or like it got more serious in Act Three. It's a comedy all the way through. That's it's a fun movie.
0: Yeah, I don't know if he's actually trying to ever like scare the audience or or get you to feel you know, some, some intense dread or whatever, or like worry that, oh no, Ash is going to be hurt. I mean, there's a whole sequence, like Ash turns into a demon and then he's just like, "Mm, I don't want to be a demon. And then he's not like, there's no rhyme or reason to any of that. We're not worried about his safety as a
1: protagonist in any way. Come on, Josh. Don't you, don't you ever acknowledge science? He was a demon. And then, then the sun came out science, Josh. And then he's not a demon anymore. God. Wait, I don't think, that wasn't what happened,
0: was it? It was that he saw the little like locket that he'd given his girlfriend and the power of love made him not a
2: demon anymore. Right? Both things kind of slowed down his demonness at various moments in the Because there
0: were still other demons going on there. And the, if the sun, sure. and the, I don't think the sun was up, but even if it was, it did not stop those demons from being demons. There are some wishy washy
2: rules here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm almost, I look, I rewatched the trilogy for this of so. The Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, an army of darkness, and uh maybe some things are running together in my head, but I'm almost positive that as the sun comes up, he undemonifies in this one. But maybe it's a different one.
0: No, I, I mean I think. think the idea of the sun coming up being like safety is is a thing that they talk about, and definitely in the first movie, there's a moment of the sun coming up, and it's like, oh, things are okay now, but. I, I think in this one, the reason that Ash becomes no longer a demon is because he sees that little locket that he'd given his girlfriend, and he he reasserts his human emotion or whatever. So I feel like Dave has to has to be. You've seen this
2: what hundreds of times. Dave, Dave said both. Dave said both. Yeah, no, it ha- it happens both times. It does. It, it's like a temporary reprieve when the sun comes out, but it's the locket that like really like curism minute.
1: double science josh
2: i mean mm. the point being
0: that there's no <laughs> consistency or logic and we don't we don't worry about that's what i'm saying yeah about. it doesn't matter yeah right. and none of right. it matters and you're not like oh no ash i care about him so much what will happen to him um you know he's bugs bunny
1: basically right as mm-hmm. uh, as as you've pointed out josh on this podcast uh, i am sometimes the logic police in films and um uh, uh, and those inconsistencies from one to two to three uh, were tough to follow. But really, eh,
0: whatever. Right. I mean, I think the tone of this movie is is giving you that. You, Raimi is saying, look, I don't care. So you shouldn't care either, basically, about these kinds of consistencies. I agree. So finally, Kevin Thomas in the Los Angeles Times was a big fan. He said, With Evil Dead 2, young Detroit filmmaker Sam Raimi takes us back to that accursed cabin in the Michigan woods for more gore and more laughs. Evil Dead 2 isn't so much a sequel as an elaborate replay of the original. Happily, Raimi and co-writer Scott Spiegel's unflagging inventiveness and humor keep us from feeling we've seen it all before, even when we know we have. There are images of satanic grace that actually recall Bosch. Thanks to the darkly mischievous power of Raimi's bizarre imagination and a truly sensational design and special effects team to give it full reign, Evil Dead 2 never lets up, continually introducing new characters and adding new thrills and chills right up to the last frame. As a filmmaker, Raimi is a dynamo who knows how to make a movie as cinematic
1: as possible. Uh, There's a great chapter in Quentin Tarantino's book uh, where he just gives all this love to kevin thomas who was the the b critic at the la times right for all those years and and would cover genre movies and exploitation movies and you know all the stuff that the uh, a critic wouldn't cover so it's nice that you got him on here and uh all the rest yeah all right (laughs) i had other points but i got lost in my kevin thomas uh no i'm I'm,
0: i think that's wonderful and i'm glad that that tarantino is is Taking time in his book to give such praise to a lesser-known critic. It's not just yeah. Pauline kale or Roger Ebert or something. So that's excellent. Right.
1: right. Um, I forget what the rest of the review was. No, but that's it. Sounded, it sounded accurate. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the
0: things he says here, the idea that, you know, Raimi can make the movie the, make the movie cinematic, which obviously, like it's a movie, it's cinematic. But I think that's one of the things about this film is that it's visually so creative and you know, it's a, still a low budget movie, but it has a much bigger budget than the first Evil Dead. And you can tell that Raimi is making like every possible use of every dollar that he's gotten for this film in the effects, in the, the setups, the the camera movement, all of it is just like, it's even if the plot is repetitive, the events are repetitive, he's always figuring out a new way to show you what's going on.
1: Right. It's just, you're you're always captivated as a viewer. Um, with this film, De Laurentiis had a studio in Wilmington, North Carolina, and offered Raimi that space to film it at, and he chose to film it three hours away so the producer wouldn't get too involved in the production, very smart, and uh, got to do his own thing here.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely like Raimi's 100% undiluted vision, which is always appreciated, I think as we've said many times, even if some things I feel like don't work or I don't love, like the fact that this is exactly what the director wanted to make and that he's really going for it. I always appreciate that.
1: Uh, I did like the shout out to the effects team because it's like an all-star team of uh effects people in this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like Peter Jackson, you know, when we talked about his his early work uh, with Dead Alive, Raimi is somebody who surrounded himself with these incredibly innovative effects people and. Working with him pushed them on to becoming major forces in the world of
1: special effects. I was actually thinking about that the Jackson and Raimi kind of duality here, because like they're both making the splatter core horror comedies, and obviously Raimi did it first um, or before him with the Evil Dead, but it, it's not like today where you know we have access to everything. So I was wondering how much of an influence um, Raimi had on Jackson. I don't think they had any personal connection but it seems like evil dead is very uh beloved by mr jackson
0: i mean they have very similar career trajectories too going from these early like splatter comedies to making these huge blockbusters and you know uh, the like i said the whole being kind of mentors or godfathers of, of, of special effects development and everything and there's so many parallels there and, and right and
1: And they were making the same types of movie at the same
0: time. All those things that you were referencing, right, right, right. And and Dave loves both of them. Absolutely, that's really the most important connection. (laughs) So, uh, Jason, had you watched this one before, or any of the Evil Dead movies?
1: Yeah, I had seen the trilogy probably uh, as a kid. I'd say maybe sixth or seventh grade. (laughs) Oh, I I was at six or seven years old. Only Dave was no at that point. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. and it's been a long time since I've watched them. Maybe I saw, maybe it was college, and watched them again. I don't even remember, but you know, they're always there. I mean, they've literally made, I mean, they've done other stuff in their careers, but this story keeps going and going. I bet in 1981, when they did the first one, if you were like, hey, do you think 40 years from now you'll still be making Evil Dead content, they wouldn't have said yes to that.
0: Right. Yeah. It is kind of amazing how, how, long-lived this has been. I also saw these movies um, in like high school and college, I think, the Evil Deads, as well as Army of Darkness. I'm pretty sure Army of Darkness was the first Evil Dead movie I saw because I probably saw it in theater. And because it had a different title, I might not have even known at the time that it was a sequel to other films, which I think was probably part of the point of giving it that title so it could reach a different market. But I think I saw that and then went back and watched the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And I hadn't seen, I didn't have a chance to rewatch Army of Darkness, so I think I probably still haven't seen that since it was originally in theaters. But I had rewatched the first Evil Dead when the 2013 version came out. But Evil Dead 2, this one, I don't think I'd seen since. Probably I was a teenager in my early 20s. So it's it's been a long time, but but it was fun to watch it again. And um, Dave, I assume you've seen this, Hunter. Dave has it on a loop at his house. Dave's watching it right now as we do this podcast. <laughs>
2: no, y- y- you joke, but like seriously in high school it it really was. Like I, I probably watched it like a hundred times in senior year alone, but like, no, I I, uh, I had also seen Army of Darkness in the theater first, had no idea it was a sequel to something, you know? And then I, I saw it with my dad opening weekend, and then he read a review of it that mentioned that it was a sequel to these things. And so then I went backwards. I watched Evil Dead 2 next, and then Evil Dead, and yeah, just lifelong since then. I
1: wonder if how many people, because I wonder if I did that too, if I, you know, uh, I bet a lot of viewers have seen these in incongruous order.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, mm-hmm. I think that was probably one of the things. An Army of Darkness was another, it was a bigger budget, more mainstream film, and they probably didn't want to tie it so closely to these weird, cold horror movies so that they could reach a bigger audience.
1: Having rewatched all three uh, in prep for this podcast, I was very pleased that the quality of all three are so similar, right? You know, there's not a real drop-off here. Uh, there's no crystal skulls, Josh. No. And... <laughs> Um, but and and especially with Army of Darkness, you know, they take a big swing by setting it in that different time period and having to get away from the kind of aspects of the story we already know. And it still holds up with the rest of the other two.
0: Yeah. I would have liked to have time to watch it and it just didn't. I watched the original Evil Dead because that seemed more important to kind of prime me for this one. And I just ran out of time, but I remember really liking it as a kid, certainly And being a gateway to these kinds of films, which I certainly was getting into as we talk about, I think, with the Peter Jackson stuff, like the video store covers. And this one has another great one where you're like, what, I got to watch this. And, you know, that was certainly something I was doing as a teenager, grabbing all those.
1: This is a little aside here. Um, There's a a theater company in town, Majestic Rep, uh, that's doing uh, Screamed, the musical right now. And I was in the theater the other day and they have a fake video store set. And there are so many posters, including The Evil Dead, where I'm like, yep, awesome movie here. Did that on awesome movie year. <laughs> Doing that on awesome movie here. So it's fun that we're covering so many of these seminal pieces. Yeah,
0: and all of these wonderful video store uh, staples, I think. is It's great to revisit. So uh, anything else you want to say about the background of this film, Jason? You mentioned the
1: co-writer there, Scott Spiegel. Spiegel and Ramy basically wrote this on the set of Crime Wave which I think we have to watch to see what a debacle it was.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to see that. Another thing that if I had had more time this week, I would have wanted to check out because he worked with the Cohen brothers on that. And that was a movie that was really hard to watch for a while and now is is very easy to watch. So um would be worth checking out, I think.
1: There's a lot of uh, Cohen and Raimi collabs that we could look at from the 80s, right? Blood Simple and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. they were They were working together a lot. And it's always amazing when these people and like, you know, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi had, you know, known each other for years when these people who are just like friends from high school or whatever. And and it turns out that they all become like mega famous, super talented artists, you know, and they were just
1: all hanging out together as kids. Well, wasn't that the big thing? There's like that high school in Long Island where like uh, Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond and I forget one other very famous person were all classmates.
0: Yeah, it could be. Or those things about, you know, college roommates who are you imagine how they lived, lived together and, you know, became massive stars later on. They start podcasts. Right. Yeah, too. that's true. We, Jason and I, are perfect <laughs>
1: examples of this. The best story of college roommates who lived together and both became famous and relevant to uh, our David Lynch episode, 1977. David Lynch was roommates at Harvard with Peter Wolf, the lead singer from the Jake Isles Band. And David, David uh, Lynch kicked Peter Wolf out for being too weird. Mm-hmm. I bet you told that story in our Razorhead episode. I'm just saying, imagine you're too weird for David Lynch, dude.
0: I, I think that would be amazing. Only the Wooba Gooba. Yeah. We'll come back then and talk more of our general thoughts on Evil Dead 2. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about our producer, David Rosen's pick evil dead 2 and uh, jason is currently playing with some sort of plastic hand that is giving me the finger that's the i think that's the wrong finger jason um, there you go now you got it this is fascinating stuff for the podcast but uh jason is really having thumbs up bar two yeah thumbs up thank you thank you ebert the robot hand <laughs> evil dead 2 that's what we're doing here. And and Dave, since you picked this and since you love this movie so much, what keeps you watching? What what makes you watch a movie hundreds of times? I've never watched a single movie hundreds of times. What makes you watch a movie that much?
2: It's it's just perfect. It's so much fun from beginning to end. Bruce Campbell is so damn watchable and so lovable. And his physical comedy is just unbeatable. And Everything he does in this movie is so funny. The effects, the gore, and all that stuff, which we you know know the Evil Dead movies for, uh, it, you just can't beat this stuff. I mean, Peter Jackson comes close with some of his stuff, but uh, this is this is the tops. And uh, it's just scene after scene after scene that gets me every time. Like it's it's hilarious. It's fun. And it's just a movie I can't get tired of. I just, I have so much fun every time I go back to it.
1: I was thinking that, well, I marked it down, the physical comedy, because I'm like, you know, when we were growing up, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, big physical comedians, Bruce Campbell never got that credit. And you're right. His physical comedy is as good as anybody's. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the whole bit with the hand and especially it's like when he's like lying on the floor and the hand is like pulling him along the floor, like. That's a tough thing to do as an actor, to convince me in the audience that your hand is like a separate person from you or whatever, a separate entity. And he does that perfectly. And it's, yeah, it's very funny. And I think especially to me watching this right after the first one, where Bruce Campbell is fine in that first movie, but he's not like Bruce Campbell, you know, that he's like really emerges with that persona that he's so well known for in this film in, in such a strong way versus the first one.
1: Right. Um, I think that also helps that, I mean, it, you know, he basically got a practice room, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they, this is almost a do-over for both him and for Sam Raimi, in a way, basically telling the same story, you know, which is, again, barely like a story. But the idea that here in this isolated cabin in the woods is this Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead, that if you read from it, it summons these demons and, and bad shit happens. And that's pretty much the whole deal.
1: I was also, we keep bringing up the effects, like each new effect was just the delight to watch. Eyeballs flying across the room, headless Linda dancing, you know, just so much fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is fun. And like the headless Linda dancing, for example, is like, that's not the kind of thing that you would think, oh, we're going to put this in a horror movie because it's not scary or gross or, and, and even theoretically, like it's like a ballet like it's 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 not even
1: funny per se it's just weirdly beautiful I think it's funny I mean you know I think it uh Tim I got Tim Burton vibes from it another contemporary yeah. right sure but yeah. I, I I think that speaks to the ambition of the movie right it's like we said it's short it's comedic it's this it's that so one location film pretty much but it is very ambitious because we're using stop motion we're using all these practical effects we're really centering it around one character. So they really had to blow this thing out, so to speak, and I think they did a good job of it. And I like the risk they took, both from a technical standpoint, we talked about all these amazing special effects team uh, members, and also from a storytelling standpoint. Like I didn't remember the end, and I was hoping the end was what it was, and it was. So there was that because it was
0: that. It sure was. And that's,
1: and that's what it was. <laughs>
0: you you that's said it, my twister. friend. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to, like, I agree. The effects are amazing. And it is impressive that they, Raimi, can offer you, like I was saying before, so many different ways of depicting the same thing over the course of 85 minutes. But I think there's so little story. I think there's even less of a plot in this one than there is in the first one. Because, I mean, at least in that first one, it's like, hey, we have this whole group of people and we spend a little bit of time setting up who they are and their relationships to each other before they get to this cabin and the horrific stuff starts to happen. And then one by one, they kind of all become possessed. But here, like so much of this movie, and and yeah, Bruce Campbell's physical comedy is amazing. But a lot of this movie is just Bruce Campbell by himself looking at shit and screaming. And, you know, it gets, to me, it gets repetitive after a while. As cool as the effects look, I'm with Ebert. Then after 45 minutes or so, I'm like, okay, I got it. What else is well, there? I, th-
1: I think, you know, to reiterate what I was saying earlier, I, ag- I agree with you. I think for me, The Evil Dead is the best of the trilogy. And part of that is because they had that group there. So there was always something else to keep the momentum moving forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I don't even necessarily like that movie better. I think visually and effects wise and all that kind of stuff, this movie is clearly superior, but it just felt like there was a little bit more to grab onto with the plot, even though there's basically nothing. You know? <laughs> and this, this one has even less than nothing. I feel like, I mean, we set up the idea of the, the woman who's like the daughter of the, the, uh, researcher or whatever. Who the professor. Had, yeah, the professor who found the Book of the Dead and she's on her way there. And it, that doesn't really amount to anything other than like, oh, here's some more people who can show up and get possessed. And it almost seems like a waste of time that he could have just had anybody show up and it wouldn't have mattered because we don't care about what happens to these people or what any of it means.
1: Right. Um Yeah, I guess that's fair. I'm thinking you could just you can eliminate all of the scenes of her before she gets to the cabin. You could pretty much do that and make the movie work, I'd say, the same way.
0: Right. And that's why I'm saying it doesn't matter. Like when those scenes started, I thought, oh, maybe there is a more substantial story here than I remembered or a more substantial story than there is in the first movie. And, and I knew that Army of Darkness was coming. I remembered that this movie ends the way that it ends and that that's what the, the story is in that next one. And I thought maybe they're going to build up a little bit more mythology or whatever. Not that it needs that, and I don't think Raimi is trying for that per se, but I, I was hoping maybe there'd be a little bit more momentum plot-wise, and there just really isn't. Like, he, he's great at that visual momentum, but the plot is just has one gear, and it, it keeps spinning that.
2: The funny thing about what you're saying, Josh, is uh, and we'll talk, of course, about the uh, the later sequels, uh, you know, more in the legacy, but they don't do much more either. Like they're perfectly fine with resting on gross out gore, you know, maybe throw a joke in here and there, although they're not nearly as funny as these three but you know, it's gore and like kind of a thrill ride of horror, whereas the story kind of takes a backseat, which I I don't disagree. Like the story is backseat to everything else going on. I mean,
1: that could also be part of the genre, you know, when we're talking about those Peter Jackson movies, like, you know, watching those, I'm not like, wow, this is such intricate plotting here.
0: No, and I mean, as we talked about in our Dead Alive episode, which I was not particularly a fan of that. And that was part of the reason, like to me, horror movies and I watch a lot of horror movies and horror movies where the primary like quality of the movie is just that it's really gross generally don't work for me. Like you don't have to have a super intricate plot and like spend an hour on character development or whatever, but I need a little bit of that. I need to care about the characters and understand what is happening to them in order to sort of like be engaged with the movie and not just like oh cool, blood everywhere.
1: Well, I mean, you care about Bruce Campbell because he's so charismatic honestly like that's true like you root for that character right um i don't consider this gross did you consider it gross
0: i think i mean maybe not as much as dead alive or or bad taste or those early peter jackson movies but i think yeah it is pretty gross and i mean when we're getting like that one review described the like kelly green blood it's definitely meant to be gross. It looks like I, slime from Nickelodeon or something.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I mean. It's not gross because it's so like kinda over the top. But I guess, you know, taking a chainsaw to a headless corpse or having eyeballs fly into your mouth, I guess I could see how you could go gross on that, Josh. Yeah,
0: I think so. <laughs> I mean right. Not as much as those
1: Peter Jackson movies, but but still. Meant to. but at the same time like like I had mentioned the scene where the, he shoots the wall and then these buckets and, buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of blood fly at him and it's like I'm so glad that they just went for that and they didn't you know half ass it like if you cut that in half the joke isn't funny but it what makes it so funny is just like it doesn't stop it just keeps coming and it could be like one of those things where like you might watch and be like this is funny now it's gone overboard oh, it's still going? It's funny again.
0: <laughs> right, right. And I think that's a lot of what the humor is, where you think like, oh, this is ridiculous. How much of this can there possibly be? And then there's far more than you imagine. But I mean, there are like, not all of the humor is that like in your face. I mean, there, there I wouldn't call anything in this movie subtle, but there are little touches too. I mean, I the, my favorite joke is the bit when Ash, you know, takes his evil hand and puts it under a bucket and then puts a, a pile of books on top of the bucket in order to, to keep it down. And the, the top book is A Farewell to Arms. I mean, that's a, a silly joke, but it's very amusing to me.
1: I did not like that. I didn't dislike it. I just thought it was so blatant. It was like, wah, wah. It didn't, did, that joke is, I mean, obviously there on purpose, but like, whatever. All right. That was my favorite joke in the whole movie. <laughs> Dave, you? It's a, it's a great joke. Come on. <laughs> Is it I mean why wouldn't you just like why wouldn't I mean, you know, a farewell to arms? I probably would have found a book with, you know, the word hand in it or something. Yeah, but I, guess.
0: Uh, I mean like that's a famous book that people will have heard of. And
1: ah, so The Handmaid's
0: Tale? I don't know if the Handmaid's Tale was out in 1987. I, whatever. I get the classic. joke. I just
1: don't I don't love the joke. How about that? That's but fine. That's fair. That's fair. So um uh, but um you know what I want to bring up, which um we've talked about these technical elements, the sound design is so good, especially when the evil dead is like rushing through the forest. You're getting these kind of fast flying camera movements and you hear the world, you know, all that stuff. (laughs) Another, another impression here for me. Yes. Um, And uh, I liked reading about that. It's a combination of Sam Raimi's voice and audio samples of Orson Welles. Wow. Technically making this the last film appearance he had in any capacity. That is pretty cool. Where wow. did those
0: samples come from? Does it say? Did you find that I, out?
1: I think Sam Raimi just went to Orson, went to Peter Bogdanovich's, of you know, mansion where Orson Wells was just spending his days. And then, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Sam Raimi put his hands on Orson Wells' belly and went go 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 and Orson Welles went. Ugh. Uh, don't quote me on that that seems likely yeah i thought maybe they
0: were from you know citizen Kane or something like that which would be even funnier but that seems like the most likely scenario as you describe it so we'll go with that yeah don't be ridiculous josh of course of course not do
2: you have a favorite gag a favorite joke in this dave oh my god there's there's so many um I've just one moment off the top of my head when the house is uh, talking to Ash and and, uh, saying, join us and uh, is going in the house. And he like looks at the house. He looks at his car. He looks back. And then immediately it just cuts to him driving away super fast through the forest. I like love that. That reaction is just such perfect comic timing. Um, it's so ridiculous. There's
1: a lot of great editing, which I think that speaks to that. Like they really know yeah. how to transition, or when um they're pulling people up from the, the cellar where you know demonic Henrietta is, and you can just like get those slash cuts. Those really work well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's as we said, this is a short movie, and it doesn't flag at any point. So, um, at least in terms of of what they're throwing at you, you know, to me it exhausted me but it definitely it doesn't have lulls to it i don't think
1: well you're easily exhaustible josh that is
0: true i <laughs> i have very low energy in general
2: <laughs> need to take a lot of naps so that's fair uh, dave what are we missing uh well you just brought up henrietta but shout out to ted ramey uh, uh amazing character um the the whole design of that is ridiculous and when she does that little hulk hogan thing when she's getting up that's great you know, I don't know. There's, there's, there's so much I could go on for an hour on this one. So you know, well, you know, you're you're here, so feel free to uh, gush some more as the movie does. I, I, I love the music. Um, I I love that first. Speaking of Henrietta, actually, just to go back to that, I love when they uh, they have Ash trapped down in the basement and they uh, they're playing the tape recorder and they're hearing the uh, you know, God help me, I buried her in the earth floor in the fruit cellar. just the structure of that whole moment, the way that it's playing, they're all listening. And then she bursts up through the floor and he starts screaming. I mean, that's just perfect movie making, right there. Although I thought it was hilarious that like she's been there the whole time, but she was like, I gotta wait (laughs) until they play the tape where the guy says I'm here before I can come out. It goes right back to Sam Raimi. Just, he doesn't give a shit. It's just what'll be the best for this moment. That's all that matters. There's
1: a great shot in a simple plan of, um, Billy Bob Thornton's character just sitting on the steps of a cellar and then Bill Paxton comes down and the room, you know, not dissimilar to the cellar layout in this. And I wonder if this was like kind of something he, not going to say like, oh, I'll save this shot, but just something he was playing around with, how to shoot when he was doing this stuff that he was able to utilize later. He loves cellars. He does. He does. There are things he loves, Josh, like like cellars. (laughs) so true (laughs) that's the insight we've got here on this film (laughs) i mean well i mean look i mean there are other things he loves like when ash loves his oldsmobile right and then when ash is preparing for battle it's become like iconic to show the montage of him like weaponing up right right Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying he was the first to ever utilize that but he's done that so well that i think a lot of people have definitely taken from it you know i think of movies even like the kingsman or whatever and it's like the big battle You're going to hear something like back in black and you just see guys strapping up with um, with weapons. And I think Raimi does that really effectively.
0: Yeah. And that is a great montage and another example of the really excellent editing in this film and the way that like that montage, you can see this is the moment where Ash becomes like a superhero, where he becomes this iconic character, because like I said, even in the first one you don't like ash is the final survivor or whatever but you don't necessarily think of him as a great character or even as a character on like a level above the other characters in that one whereas here it's clearly the ash
2: show yeah absolutely and and that's one other thing we should mention is you know there's not a lot of horror movies with heroes like like the the hero character that we all Remember and know from movie to movie, and you know there's a final girl sometimes, but she'll usually die a couple of movies later or something. You know, like this is this is the person you follow, and this is who Evil Dead is. Right? No, I think that's
0: absolutely true, and that's the thing is that most horror franchises, if they're driven by a, an iconic character, it's the villain, it's Freddy, it's Jason, yeah. Michael Myers, Chucky, whatever, and uh, you know, if, Halloween is a hero. But but you know, if you say who is the like, main character of the Halloween movies, it's Michael Myers. It's not Lori Strode. I mean, you know, uh, there's Nancy in the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, too. And I love Heather Langenkamp in those movies. I think she's brilliant. And we talked about her, I think, when we did New Nightmare. But no. but those movies are about Freddy. They're about Freddy Krueger. I think if you're listing, you know, horror icons of all time, and, you know, it would be a list of all villains and ash, I think, this quite possible. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ash versus Evil Dead, right? That's the TV show. It's not Laurie versus the Halloween men.
0: Right. And when they, re- when they make a new <laughs> Halloween movie, it's not titled with Laurie Strode's name, even if she's in it. So yeah, I think that is a good point, Dave, is that, I mean, and the other thing is, the flip side of that is that there's no iconic villain, right? There's no one character that Ash keeps fighting over and over again. There's just the deadites, which are sort of indistinguishable from each other.
1: Right it's less about the villain and more about the villainy that they uh they conjure up
0: right right and and sort of the idea that anyone around you could suddenly become possessed and which which to me is I and mean, we will talk about this more i guess is like part of the also liability of this franchise because it doesn't mean anything after a certain point when just every single person who ever appears on screen is just going to become possessed and die, um, especially when you have a three-season TV series, but uh, we'll we'll get to that later, I think. So, uh, should we rate this out of five uh, what, five fake shimps, the uh, Sam Raimi's yeah. favorite
1: term for the body doubles in his films? Oh, that's a good one. I was also going to bring back our missing hand, but uh, mm. let's go five fake shimps. Gets three and a half from me fun to watch happy to watch it again
0: yeah i give it three out of five i agree it's fun but i kind of lost interest in it halfway through or so but uh dave you're gonna give this 85 shems out of five as many as you guys will let yeah me.
2: absolutely right. five fake shems for sure okay
0: cool well we'll come back and talk about the legacy of evil dead 2 Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about our producer, David Rosen's pick, Evil Dead 2. And we've talked a bit about the overall Evil Dead franchise as the part of the main legacy. I think here, Army of Darkness, the direct sequel that came out in 1992, and then a long period of speculation, I guess, about what might happen with the franchise before it returned again in 2013 with what I guess you would call a remake, which was also called Evil Dead that took place in the cabin and and was similar. And then just earlier this year, we had Evil Dead Rise. And I'm not really a huge fan of either of those, but uh, Dave is the connoisseur of this franchise. What do you think about those two?
2: I thought the remake was good, although it focuses 100% on like, Evil Dead is supposedly the scariest movie ever. Let's remake that when we all just wanted comedy, you know. Uh, Evil Dead Rise is a mixed one for me. I think Elisa Sutherland's Ellie is such a fun character. The main, like, mother deadite character in the movie. She is great, and everything around her is just, like, kind of fan fiction. It's, you know... It's kind of whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been a mixed bag, you know, as far as the movies are concerned. Yeah. But
1: Raimi was, didn't he, he exec produced the last one, right?
2: I mean, he he was yeah. a
1: pretty
0: heavily involved in both of them, I think, mm-hmm. as a producer. And Bruce Campbell as well. So, I mean, they're, they're it's not like a case of some studio owns the rights and does stuff without their permission
1: or approval. Fun uh, yeah. Bruce Campbell story. I don't know if I ever told this to Dave, but he's not going to like it. I'll tell you that much. So I had a uh, script... Uh, that uh, was getting a little heat a year or two ago. And this something I wanted to direct. And uh, this manager read it. He's like, I think this is great. One of my clients just did a movie with Bruce Campbell. I think if you give it to him to direct, you could get Bruce Campbell in the movie. And I watched the movie and the movie's not very good. And it doesn't really utilize Bruce Campbell as well as it should have been. And I was like, well, I love the idea of having Bruce Campbell in this, but I don't love the idea of this director taking it. And I was like, but I'll give... I'll throw you something else for him. Like, and then he read that other script and he's like, well, this script needs work. And he goes, this, this, and this. And I was like, well, I hear what you're saying. Here's why I would, what we were going for. Uh, not that I'm against putting work in. And then uh, that manager never talked to me.
0: I know you, I was waiting for the point in the story where Bruce Campbell like dissed you or whatever. So I don't think this is a negative
2: Bruce Campbell story. <laughs> Which he, he does diss his fans quite no, often. No, I, th- so I, I think, I think in a fun way. Yeah, that would be
1: good. I think Dave would be unhappy that I let it. Bruce Campbell, uh, adjacent opportunity, a walk away yeah. for me. But if you're not going to utilize them in the right way, what's the point? Yeah.
0: I mean, and I, like I was saying, he has yeah. this very distinctive persona that really, I think comes to life in this film and that he's cultivated throughout his entire career. Um, but going back to the
1: franchise, Jason, have you seen those, those later films? No, I watched the premiere episode of Ash versus evil dead because Dave, uh, demanded I do it. And that's Raimi directed it. And, you know, they kind of catch you up on the story. But I would like to see those other two, just to finish what canon there is right now. I don't think I, I like Dash vs. Evil Dead, but I don't think I'm going to watch all three seasons of it.
0: Yeah, I watched the first season. And and like I was saying, I think this applies to that. It applies to those, those two later films as well. When the entire concept is just there's, as we were saying, there's no really coherent like rules or understanding of how this possession works or how you stop it. And so basically you're just waiting for every single person on screen to become a demon and get killed. And, and the, the TV series, at least what I remember the first season was like every episode, Ash was like, hey, look, here's somebody who can help me. Oh, no, wait, they're a deadite. I got to kill them and move on. And it just got boring after a while.
1: It's so interesting you say that because when we're talking about this research and the people involved and the special effects team, you get to Greg Nicotero, right? Who's made probably a billion dollars with The Walking Dead franchise as an exec producer or producer, showrunner, whatever he is there. And that you've literally just described why I stopped watching The Walking Dead. I get it. This person's going to be a zombie. I get it. This person's Supposed to um have some final battle with this person, but we postpone that it just it's so repetitive over and over again,
0: yeah, I really feel like this is the kind of story and this applies to The Walking Dead too that like doesn't work as a TV series. Of course, I'm wrong, obviously because The Walking <laughs> Dead has gone on itself as like a sort of weird zombie thing for decades, I guess at this point and has like five spinoffs but But I think you're spot on, Jason, is that, like, from a plot standpoint, this isn't a concept that sustains an ongoing story.
1: Uh, I mean, there's got to be more coming to it. We know that this franchise will continue to live, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're always talking about what's next. And Evil Dead Rise generally was well-received and was successful. And I, you know, even at, at this point, you know, Bruce Campbell's getting older, but he still always is saying, well, maybe I'll play Ash again. It could happen. Who knows? And there's been so many ancillary things. There's Evil Dead comic books. And, you know, going back to what we talked about with Ash as like a horror icon, the comics include Ash versus Freddy versus Jason. And movie wise, there's always speculation about Ash taking on some other iconic horror villain in a movie, which has never happened. Um There's Evil Dead uh, video games, and there was the Evil Dead, the musical stage production, which I saw that here in Vegas. I don't know if you ever did, Jason.
1: I used to perform in the same theater. The V Theater had like five different theaters, and that was going on in one room, and we were doing comedy in another room. I probably should have seen that.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, I saw it not at the V Theater when it was just at like a community theater before they got to move it to the strip. Maybe I saw it there, too. And it was, I you know, it, it, in theory, it was fun. In practice, it was again, it was just kind of one note. And
2: it, it, I hate
0: interactive theater. So that, you know, <laughs> didn't
2: really. <laughs> I saw both versions of it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's all right. Did you play the Evil Dead video games, Dave? I played the old ones on um, PlayStation. There was just recently a new one, but it was one of those multiplayer online games. And as amazing as it looked as a fan, like I don't play those kind of games. So. All right. How do you feel about interactive theater?
1: Nah. (laughs) That's like literally how I make most of my living at this point. Sorry, Jace. I I,
0: uh, (laughs) respect that, but I hate
1: attending it. <laughs> First of all, Josh, as you know, you have to call it by its trendy name, Immersive Entertainment right now. Sure. And mm-hmm. uh, I've done a lot of Immersives the last few years as an actor, and uh, I think literally I just got cast in another one this week. So, <laughs>
0: And I support your career and wish you continued success as long as I don't have to attend these productions.
1: I would be offended, except I know you don't attend anything at this point in your life. You're a recluse. <laughs> You're, uh, you know, uh, that's true. Uh, but I, even even prior to
0: that, I I would always hate going to those interactive as a person with anxiety. It, it, it makes me so uncomfortable <laughs> to attend stuff like that.
1: Do you, Dave, have any non? Here's a two part question or two questions. Non-Ash favorite Bruce Campbell performances, A, and B, non-franchise Sam Raimi movies. Favorites. Good questions. I mean, well, you know, I
2: guess that kind of doesn't count, but I was going to say the Spider-Man movies, his little cameos each time uh, are are my favorite Bruce Campbell stuff. That counts. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just little scenes. But as far as Sam Raimi, though, Drag Me to Hell is like the closest genuine thing we've had to another Evil Dead movie. Like, you know, not counting these remakes that are, you know, they they kind of get what's good about Evil Dead, but not really. Uh, Drag Me to Hell is exactly the right kind of thing that a follow up should have.
0: Yeah, I really like Drag Me to Hell. And I, I, Jason and I were talking about Raimi and I said I recently had watched The Quick and the Dead for the first time, his Western with yeah. Sharon Stone and, and Leonardo DiCaprio, which I loved. I thought that was fantastic. But um, I've enjoyed almost all the Raimi films that I've seen uh, post-Evil Dead. Uh Jason, you mentioned a simple plan. I think the gift is another solid thriller. I love the Spider-Man movies right. as we talked about our Spider-Man three episode that we did. It's, that's not the best of them, but I, you know, even that has its strong points. Uh I kinda even liked Oz the Great and Powerful.
1: So hey.
0: uh, you know, Raimi is not a prolific director, but I feel like he almost always does something interesting.
1: I like the first Doctor Strange that you didn't mention, but not He the didn't direct one. the first Doctor Strange, though. He didn't do the first. Uh, maybe
0: that's why I liked it. <laughs> but you didn't like the, <laughs> same, the most recent one, the uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, he did direct, and his, his, that's his most recent one.
1: Uh, it's so not memorable to me. I know I've seen it, but I couldn't really tell you. I guess I'm just between superheroes and multiverses, like they're all running together this point
0: in time. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm actually with you. I when it came out, a lot of reviews said, Oh, you know, Raimi's really adding his his distinctive touches to this. And I, I didn't see that at all. It was just another mediocre Marvel movie to me.
2: Yeah, there's like five scenes where you're like, oh shit, it's Raimi again. And the rest of the movie is just a Marvel movie. Yeah. It's the same old stuff. No
1: love for Baba Hotep on this podcast, huh?
2: I watched it once so many years ago. I, I'm going to probably rewatch it like this week. I'm like actually really excited to get back to it. Um, it's fun, but I didn't like love it at the time. I got to rewatch that. Yeah, I feel like that was my reaction as well. So uh, Jason, you
0: saw a Simple Plan again recently. Is that your favorite non-Evil Dead Raimi?
1: Um, I guess so at this point. I mean, there's a few others I would want to rewatch. You know, you didn't mention For Love of the Game, which I remember being a decent baseball movie. That's probably my favorite. It's That first hour, I'm like, God, it's so good, that first hour, and the script is amazing. Kind of falls off after in the second half, but it did make me miss, sadly, Bill Paxton, you know, and it also made me miss Bridget Fonda. Really good performances, Billy Bob. They just kill it in that movie. They're great. Yeah, I haven't
0: seen that in a really long time, but I remembered loving that as well. Um, I think Bubba Hotep maybe is Bruce Campbell's other biggest, like, cult thing, but he really has built a career. Out of being this cult figure and being bruce campbell you know he made that movie my name is bruce which was all him playing himself and playing off his image like this town is going to hire bruce campbell to help rid them of evil demons or whatever i love that
1: i love that premise
0: it's yeah it's a good premise it's not necessarily a a a very good movie i mean he wrote to dave i know you don't read books but did you read his autobiography (laughs) that what is it like if chins could kill or something
2: I own both of his books, but uh, never actually read. But they're them. just look like, at the audio yeah, They're just there yeah. to
0: like prop up tables. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave likes no. books as decorative objects, but not to read.
2: Yeah,
1: Dave, you and Gina must have watched the Bruce Campbell vehicle, "My Southern Family Christmas," right?
2: <laughs> yeah, he ha- he has done some of that kind of stuff. No, I haven't seen it though. Uh, I'm sure it would be uh, one of those movies.
1: Josh, uh, his next movie, Bruce Campbell, Hysteria, follows a struggling high school heavy metal band of outcasts who use the town's sudden interest in the occult to start a reputation as a satanic metal band until a strange series of events triggers a witch hunt that leads them back to them. That definitely sounds like a movie that Bruce Campbell would be in. It does. Uh, Sam is attached to two projects as a director right now. The... King Killer Chronicles, uh, based on Patrick Rothfuss's book about a young man who grows up to become a notorious magician, and also a movie called War- World War Three, which imagines what later this century might look like. And by later this century, I think they meant years from now, but as tomorrow. of this recording, it might be next week, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> Raimi has been attached to so many movies that he hasn't made over yeah. the years that I would not expect those movies to ever actually be made, but we'll see what happens.
1: With that. Yeah, I didn't realize so he had produced true. all the Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess stuff with people that he collaborated here uh, with. Robert Tappert, the uh, producer who's married to Lucy Lawless, co-created Xena, and Scott Spiegel's involved in a lot of this stuff. As a writer or producer, he directed uh, From Dust Till Dawn 2, Hostel 3, and he's got uh, Spring Break 83 coming up soon.
0: Yeah, Scott Spiegel's career as a filmmaker is uh, not not great. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about Rami is that you look at his directorial like filmography, and it doesn't seem like he works that much. But he's got this incredibly successful production company that, like you said, produced those TV series that ran forever, produces tons of popular like mid budget horror movies. And it seems like he's settled into that more than being a director, which is sort of disappointing from the standpoint of wanting to see him make films, but it's working out for him, obviously.
1: Yeah. And Rami utilizes a lot of these character actors uh, in other films. You know, uh, Dan Hicks, who played Jake, was in Darkman and not in other films. But I did want to shout out Cassie Wellesley, who plays Bobby Joe. Uh, tons of work guiding light, One Life to Live in Days of Our Lives.
0: Yeah, she's known for being on, a soap, on soap operas and was on One Life to Live for 20 years. I mean, that that's a career in and of itself, just doing that one thing.
1: Get that money, dog.
0: Yeah. Uh, You mentioned Greg Nicotero, who is the the big sort of special effects icon, mainly, who came out of this and his work on The Walking Dead. He also created the Creep Show TV series on Shudder, which is kind of fun to watch, you know, going back to a Stephen King connection. And uh, related to Awesome Movie Year, I I wanted, of course, to discuss the deep connection between this film and the uh, most important movie we've ever discussed, Idle Hands.
1: Ooh. That makes sense. There you go. Uh, I feel like Cemetery man would have a have a good piece of uh, connective tissue here as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously this movie is very influential on a lot of things, but very specifically that whole hand bit. I feel like they they just watched this movie and thought, what if we made that a whole movie and yeah. then they made idle hands?
1: Yeah, right. I think they should remake this and remake Moonstruck and switch the hand elements in each one. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, so here we go, three awesome movie year
0: episodes about missing slash uh, removed hands. So we
1: love, uh, we love missing hands and we love prostitutes. And those two things can work in conjunction with each other in other ways as well. I think mm-hmm. we'll leave that there. <laughs>
0: that's Evil Dead 2. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, use your disembodied hand to reach out to us online and on social media.
1: Yeah, because we're groovy. We so, you might as well do it. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear, Facebook, and X. Ugh, I don't even like saying that. Uh, awesome Movie Pod. Uh, it's awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, and awesome movie pod on X. That's what it is. Yes. I see Josh looking just so disappointed in me yet again. You were I'm just so disgusted
0: way. at having to call it X that you messed it up, and I can't blame
1: you for that. The number one source for legitimate news in the world, X. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm Jason Harris comedy or J Harris comedy on all the socials you can look up Eat This Comedy or go for Jason on Letterboxd join the club babies
0: yeah check us out all of us on Letterboxd uh, you can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook. I'm also on Stupid X still (laughs) at Signal Bleed and at Signal Bleed on Blue Sky and on Letterboxd. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, follow us on social media at piecingpod. And for those who don't do listen to Piecing It Together, they know that I bring up Evil Dead like on practically every episode as a puzzle piece, but especially go back uh, 2019, I did an episode on a documentary called Invaluable, uh, which is about uh, Tom Sullivan, one of the lead visual effects artists, and uh, got some stories from the director of that documentary uh, about Tom Sullivan and the making of this movie.
1: I was actually going to shout out uh, your current episode, Dave, on future cult classics um, from these last few years, because if you had recorded that podcast in the 1980s, then this would have been a good choice for that. (laughs) There you go. Indeed. And Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode? Hey, Josh, we're sticking with cult classics. It's 1987. It is... um, a very interesting, I think we're going to have an interesting discussion. It's a British film called Whitnell and I, and it has such a revered love from its fan base. Um, I, I'm really interested in getting into this one with you guys. So tune in next time for with
0: Nell and I, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year.
2: Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.